0: And again, thank you again for the music that we had a chance to sing today. The rest of you that are staying put, we're in Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 14 today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 14. All right, let's look to the Lord. Again, dearly Father, we just boldly proclaim not only is this Your world, but how great you are. And we long to gather together, free from sin, free from a world of decay, around your throne one day, dwelling with you. So even though we see through a glass dimly right now and we have small little tastes of what it would be like to sing your praise, may this energize us and give us what is needed each day through the power of your Holy Spirit to live lives that are God-honoring and pleasing to you. As we open your word now, dearly Father, may it do its work in our hearts and minds, and may we submit and be obedient to it. In your name we pray, amen. We all want to fit in. Let's be honest, we all desire to fit in. No one wants to be outcast, no one really wants to be singled out. Uh, That's why if you were to ask people the greatest fear, and the greatest fear would actually be to stand in front of a group of people and talk, because literally, by definition, you are being singled out. Hence what I get the joy of doing right now. We will do whatever it takes, sadly, to fit in. Most of us, when we enter a room, we're, gay, we're looking around and seeing, am I underdressed, am I overdressed, what's the atmosphere going on here, and everything else going on, not only when you come to church, but everywhere you go. You're continually assessing what's going on and where we're doing. That's why Walmart, you never know what's going on there anyway. But when you go into places and you're like, what's the atmosphere here? How are we supposed to function? We all desire to fit in. And the pressure to fit in is not just something that happens in middle school and you get over it. The pressure to fit in happens all over the place. Not just socially, but also all around us is a pressure to fit in and even the way you think and the way you act. The pressure to fit in is nonstop all around us. With that being said, truth can never fit in with error. By definition, if it is true, it is not error. Half truths do not exist. No matter what the politicians tell you, it is either true or it is not. There is not such thing as a half truth. Just like a child, when they look at you, you say, My hands are almost clean. All right, they're not clean. All right? You're not going to touch that because there is no half-truth. What is true is true to me as well as it is true to you. I'm not talking about your opinions. I'm talking about the truth. The truth is not, de- is not determined by the individual. That is why, as we go through the book of Genesis, we are taking our time to make sure we have an understanding of a biblical worldview, the way the Bible describes the worldview, so we know it, because the Bible defines reality for us. We do not get to define reality. God's Word tells us what reality is. That is why the phrase that you see in your notes there, before we begin anything more, wimpy worldviews produce wimpy Christians. Wimpy worldviews produce wimpy Christians, and producing wimpy Christians is really easy to do. All you need to do is you take a little survey and you produce sermons that itch what people want to talk about. There's a place that I know that does this really, really well, and that's all I'm going to say, and I googled what their latest sermon series was about. Their latest sermon series in this place that I'm talking about was learning how to stack wins in your life, was a whole sermon series. That is literally right out of self-help type of theology. The Bible does not speak in those terms. The Bible says you cannot help yourself. You want to look at yourself and you will find that you are desperately wicked and sinful and you need God's help. You don't need a little catchy phrase in learning how to stack winds in your life. What you need is God's salvific work in your life to change you from head to toe, not just learning how to stack winds. Because if you're all about stacking winds, what happens when the world blows against that stack pile of winds? There is nothing standing there but anchored in your own self. That is why the leadership at CBC is fully committed with every breath to proclaim the truth which produces in Christians the ability to stand firm in the day of testing. That is why we went through 1 Peter, because 1 Peter told us over and over and over again, you will be tested, you will be maligned, but look to God. Place your faith and hope in God and God alone. So we must hold fast to the faith once given to the church, come what may. So we believe here very firmly that Christians who are able to read and to understand grammar as they read the Bible understand what the Word of God claims. We do not need to reinvent it. We are not left up to going, what do we think the Bible means? We know what the Bible means, and we are then called to obey it. But sadly, many will read the Bible and the pressure to fit in, and when the way the world thinks crashes against them, because they have a wimpy understanding of God that produces a wimpy faith, Sadly, they go to a text then, and they try to make the text claim something the text never has claimed because the pressure on them is, you need to fit in with the world's thinking. Because if only if you could fit in with the world's thinking, then you'll be accepted among the elites of our world. Because if you believe this, this is not what the world says is right or wrong. And when the Bible and the world clashes, sadly, because we have a bunch of wimpy Christians, they cave at some of the most basic facts of life. And we are seeing this all across the board. We are seeing this with every stinking church sign you go by and see. You're seeing this with every little thing all around us. We're caving to the reality of what God's Word clearly teaches. And I'm saying all of this because we're about ready to hit a passage of Scripture that has been so twisted, so warped into trying to get this. Because remember, the, the, the worldly way of thinking is to try to take evolutionary concepts and shove it into the Bible because the Bible and evolution do not mix. No matter what the theistic Evolutions try to tell you, there's a compromise all over the place. And we're about ready to hit a text that has been used and abused by many to try to fit in a worldly way of thinking into the biblical worldview. That being said, when you come from this mindset, there is a group that is in, we would they're not, it's not Democrat-Republican. When I say liberal theologians, I'm not talking that. There's, there's ways of looking at the text in a liberal way, and there are ways of looking at the text in a conservative way. The liberal looking at the text, especially we're going to go at now, comes with this idea. The idea of that is that the people in the past were not as educated as we are now. So that, this is where evolution concept comes in, because, you know, we're only evolving better, is what evolutionists say. So they come to a text like this. And when you now see two different creation accounts, what the liberal theologian basically says is, the writers of these books were ignorant, backwoods Bedouins that had no idea that when he wrote Genesis chapter 1, that now he writes Genesis chapter 2 and gives us totally two different creation accounts, and he's too, basically, let's call it dumb, to understand that he's giving us two different things. There's two ways of looking at this text. We either say this text is a different creation account, or it is a summary of a creation, of creation with a focus on day six. So before we go any further, let's read the text and let's talk about this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord made the heavens and the earth, there was no bush of the field, was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And And the mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a, river flowed out, uh, and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and it was divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which is the one that flowed through the whole land of Havilah. And there was gold, and the gold in that land was good. Badillum and Onyx, the stones that are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, I believe as we study this that a faithful reading of this text points to a summary of creation followed by a detailed look at the creation of man. That what we see at the beginning is a summary of creation. Now, I want to do that in a way because what what I really do believe, again, is all of creation, everything God did in Genesis chapter 1, is building for the great climax that He is creating man in His own image. And all of creation is for man to be part of and to glorify God in. And what we see now in Genesis chapter 2 here is a short summary and then diving right into the creation of man. And as this is being written, what we're going to see here is you're going to have several problems in the text. You'll see a problem, then you're going to see a remedy. Then you're going to see a problem, then you're going to see a remedy. All pointing out to what is the ultimate remedy, which is going to be man in the garden. So let's look at verse 5. There's no bush of the field. No small plant of the field had sprung up. And there is no rain. we got some issues there, don't we? And so how are they all solved? God creates it, He causes us to rain, and He gives us a man to till the ground and to work it. This is what I believe is happening here, because there's a pattern in the book of Genesis that's going to happen. And I'm going to show you this pattern for a second. Look at verse 4 there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth that they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So we have a summary statement, then we're going to have a little bit more detail, and then we're going to get to the point that we're trying to get to. This i this pattern here is what the author of Genesis is going to show us. If you go over to, let me get the exact. Go over to um, verse chapter five, verse one. If you go a couple pages over to chapter five, verse one, notice what we just read there in Genesis two four. Like these are the generations of the heavens and earth. Now we get to Genesis five one. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man and he made him his likeness, male and female he created them, and Adam lived this long, and now we're getting into the genealogy. The same pattern here. Summary, a quick statement of what's going on, now we're getting to the meat of it. The same thing happens again in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah worked with God, and now we're going to get the genealogies going on. And now we're going to get Noah in the flood. This is another summary statement, a little bit of detail. Now we're getting to the meat of what we're going on. And so why I'm going to argue that I believe a faithful reading of Genesis 2:4 is not a completely new creation account. What it is is a summary of what happened in a problem-solving summary. Here are the problems. Nothing's going on. God's going to solve it. Nothing's going on. God's going to bring a man to cultivate all these things here. And now we're diving into the text. We do not have a totally different creation. What we do here is have a summary of what is going on, and then the diving into what's going on here. We can talk more about this. We're actually going to do... I've been working on the fall Sunday school uh, teachings, and we will probably, at least for now, have four, maybe five, teachings on attacks on Genesis, the attacks on the book of Genesis, because if you can attack Genesis and make it say something it doesn't say, the flood just opens for every poor theology and every heresy known to mankind. And so Genesis has been under attack from the very, very beginning. And so we're going to go through all of these to help you have a biblical, strong biblical worldview, because my job as a pastor, what have been called to is when the pressures of this world come at you, and they will come at you strong that you do not have a wimpy understanding about the Word of God. That is why we will take, if it takes forever to get through the book of Genesis, where else are we going? Because if you don't understand this, you don't understand anything about God. Because a high view of God gives you a proper understanding of self, which helps you weather the storm. We could get, I could go on for that for hours. All right, let's get to the title of this. So the title of this we chose to do is the Garden of Eden that God is going to make. So let's point one. Man is created by God. That in and of itself is a battle right now all around. That man is created by God. This is not something that Tim came up with. This is literally from the word of Almighty God. Because man being created by God means that man is accountable to his creator. Man is not a useless passion, as the philosophers will try to tell you. Man is not just a bunch of chemicals that you put a lot of different other chemicals in. You will have something going on. No, man is literally created by God and in the creation-creature relationship. And notice how man is created in verse 5 through 7. The Lord is going to take dust, and from the dust, God is going to mold and to shape man in His own image. And he takes this dust that he has molded and shaped and does something to this dust that he has molded and shaped to his own liking and to his own image and does something with this that he has not done to any other living creature at this time. He literally breathes into his life, into his mouth, the breath of life, and man became a living being. I want to make sure we're clear on this. There is only one creation that has been given the breath of life in it by God Himself, it is mankind. That is why Paul, when he's on Acts 17, when he's with the philosophers, he describes God in this way. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. You do not do anything without the breath of God in your lungs. If He were to remove it, you would be dead. He sustains you in a way that He sustains nothing else because you are an image bearer of God. I find it incredibly interesting that in the, one of the classic novels where Dr. Frankenstein is trying to make a man, right? And he grabs all these body parts, puts it all together, and we got a freak storm that comes through, and lightning hits, hits the, this body parts together, and we don't get a live human being. What we get is some just weird, functioning creature that walks around scaring everybody because he's not really alive, he's not really dead, he's just there, all right? And we just have this huge creatures created, but we do not have that in creation here. Because this is what we do not have. We do not have God forming out of the dust, and you wait a couple more millions of years, and the dust becomes something else, and the dust becomes something else, and the dust becomes something else. The reason why we do not have that is because after this creature created in the image of God and breathed into his life, God starts giving it commands that it must rationally think through. We have a fully functioning human being. We do not have a long drawn out process. What we have in front of us is God creates this man and he places it in the garden and he tells him what to do and he expects the man to be able to do what he has given him the ability to do. So this whole idea that you came from one small scoop of who knows what all the way through through millions of years is destroyed by this text as well as many others. That is why though, When we look at mankind, the phrase that you see all throughout Isaiah, the phrase you see all throughout even in Romans, that God is the potter and you are the clay. God is the one who has designed you the way he has designed you. He has not made a mistake. He has not forgotten to take in a curve or a a this or a that that you did not like. He has made you the way he has made you, and we are to submit and to glorify God through that all. Not only did he make mankind, in his great wisdom he placed man. He placed man in a garden, a garden that man was to dwell with God together. We see this in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in in Eden, in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. We see God not only stooping down and breathing into the nostrils a breath of life, but we see that God made man a dwelling place, even within the planet, the Garden of Eden. The God made the Garden of Eden, again, for man to dwell, and in this garden was the place where God would come and dwell with man. God and man coexisting together in perfect beauty and harmony. Now, it would not take long for us to pause here for a second and go, well, wait a minute, Tim. Uh, we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore, and there's some issues that happened. And I would go, yeah, there are some issues that happened, but that doesn't happen in chapter 3. But if you go, well, well, where is this all going? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation chapter one, 21, we're going to see some incredible beauty of this salvific plan of God. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. So remember, the Garden of Eden was to be the dwelling place where God and man would dwell together, coexisting in beautiful harmony, where God would meet with man. Now in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Immediately you go, what happened to the old heaven and the old earth? Well, and why do we even need a new heaven and a new earth? Well, we'll get to that. In the... For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea is no more. We still don't know why yet, but we'll find that out. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bridegroom adorned for her husband. Again, if you ever get a chance to be at a wedding, as that bride is coming down the aisle, that is a picture for us to remember the wonderful beauty of one day us with God. Free from sin, walking down the aisle, waiting for our Redeemer who stands and sees us, As beautiful. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Garden verbiage. Now, garden verbiage again. Notice it goes, And he will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We'll get to the rest of it later. But hear the garden verbiage. We have a new heavens and a new earth because the point of all of mankind is to dwell with God. So back to our text in Genesis chapter 2. I need you to keep that, this theme ringing because here's the theme of the Bible. If you want to do the two bookends of the Bible, we have Eden to the new Jerusalem. And we're living in the in-between in between the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem. And hopefully you're asking yourself, well, what happened that we lost the Garden, and why do we need a New Jerusalem, and what made that all possible, and everything else. But we'll, we'll get to that as we work through. So what I want to do here real quick is I want to look at the Garden of Eden, because if we understand the Garden of Eden, we will understand all the things that came place, as well as all the things that we're moving towards. Because here's what happens. When God, before God created the world, and we went through this, before the foundation of the world, God decreed the beginning to the end. There is no along the way that he's making minor adjustments along the way. God has decreed it, and what we see is it playing out in time and space. And because of that, we're going to see some incredibly beautiful themes that run straight through the text of Scripture. And one of them is going to be the Garden of Eden. So let me just walk through this. First of all, the Garden of Eden was not just a really nice place for growing plants, all right? It's not one of those things where we need to name all of our health food stores, the Garden of Eden and other things like that, because we're not trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We're trying to go to the New Jerusalem. So maybe if you go to the Garden of Eden, you'll just know that that's not where our home is. Our home is in the New Jerusalem. But the Garden of Eden is a way of being, as, as many theologians would call it, is the original sanctuary. The sanctuary that all other sanctuaries or all other temples dedicated to God will be copied after. A place where God dwells with man and where man should worship God. I'll give you an example of this and why we see them. So the garden and the temple both have their entrance towards the east. When Adam and Eve are kicked out in 324, they are kicked out of the garden and the entrance is guarded by the cherubim. The cherubim are also guarding the, the mercy seat where man would dwell with God. The cherubim and the, and the, temp, and the garden of Eden and the temple have incredibly sim, incredible similarities that we as a reader should wake up and go, aha! When it says the temple is entered in from the east, you're going to go, whoa, garden of Eden talking here. And a cherubim is covering the mercy seat. The cherubim is going to guard the entrance back to the Garden of Eden when mankind is kicked out. Another thing, the tree of life that God planted in the garden is going to be symbolized in the lampstand that is in the temple. The lampstand that brings light to the whole temple, inside the temple, the same tree aspect that is in the garden. Adam is called to work and care for the garden. That same exact word is used for the priest when they work and care for the temple. Their job never being done until one day Christ, the great high priest, sits down because the sacrifice is done. Also notice, as we went through here as well, the garden was filled with gold and precious stones. The priests who were to resemble the people, literally as God was telling them what to wear, they were filled with precious stones on here, giving an inkling back of one day, this garden living that was to be filled with jewels and precious stones that one day that we will have with God. All of these things pointing to the great salvation that God will bring one day. When we hear things like this, and we see the beautiful picture of God's work all the way through the garden theme that is all throughout scripture, she calls us to long one day for the new Jerusalem, to long for that time that we can be with God, where man and God would dwell in beauty and harmony. Now, in the middle of this garden though, in verse nine, God is going to cause trees to grow. He's going to plant trees, cause them to grow. And these trees are going to be pleasant to the eye and good for food. Not only does he give the garden to man, but he gives man the food that he is going to need to survive and thrive there. And he's going to plant two trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are two trees that God planted, planted by God. The tree of life, which we will just allude to a little bit now and dive into it even more and we see it other times, the tree of life, this fruit, this tree would produce fruit and this fruit literally gave eternal life. There's not a lot we know about this tree other than the access of it had to be cut off. We do not know exactly what it would do other than this tree of life produced fruit that if eaten would give eternal life. The other tree we see is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one, again, is a little self-explanatory. The eating of this tree gave the person who ate of it the knowledge of good and evil. So we have these two trees that God planted in the garden. Now, it's interesting that the text would go out of its way to remind us of these. We will interact with them later, but the text just mentions it and then it just moves on. And what I want you to see, though, is this. As you, for those of you, as we read the word of God, some of the things as we read the word of God, all of the things are meant to, for us to understand, but there's some verbiage that should cause you to pause. So in the beginning, we have God creating, and notice he plants two trees. If you were to take that and even just run that theme through scripture, there's going to be one day. Let me go back one more step further. As you read about the Garden of Eden, there's a concept about the garden that's a little bit more of a higher exalted place. It's a little bit higher up. It's in whether they call it because people are going out of the garden and out and down of the garden. So many theologians would say it's a little bit of a raised area that God has planted for Adam and Eve to live. And So when they send them out, whether there's mountains around the back or something else, there's one way in, one way out. All right. Into this garden, the cherubim is Going in, when Adam and Eve kicked out, they say in the original language this idea, of leaving it and going down. All right, you can take that for whatever it's worth. I'm just giving you the, what they what they say. It is very interesting, though, and it is no small significance that God is the one who plants these trees, and that one day a tree on a raised area will be planted by man. And hopefully, our minds are starting to think, what tree is planted by man? One day, they will take a tree and dig a hole and out of that tree. Place our Savior on the tree. And it's interesting, this tree that now has brought death, which we'll hear about later, on a tree will bring salvation. These are things we are not to miss. These are themes we are supposed to understand when we go, A tree, cursed is him who hangs on the tree. Immediately we're going to go, whoa, tree mentality, garden, and there's there's a bigger plan here going on. These are things as we work through this, and I'm telling you, I have yet to scratch the surface on these things, because there's so much beauty in Scripture, which helps us to remember that from the very beginning to the very end, God has planned all these things, and there's not one small little jot or tittle that happens that God has not planned. That's why you can see the beauty of these things all brought together. Even you could go back to the idea of Adam, the Adam in a sinless state is called to be the gardener of the area. And what a gardener is called to do is bring forth food and abundance. And it's interesting that all of a sudden when Jesus is raised from the dead, the perfect Adam, the Adam that's going to do all things, and Mary stands and looks at him and says, Are you a gardener? There's massive indications there that we just go right by. That you're supposed to go, Oh, wait a minute, it's talking back about the big story of the Bible. And as I study this, I'll tell you, like we could be in some of these forever because of the beauty of these themes that just run throughout the text. And so you may ask yourself, though, why did God do it this way? I mean, why not just create a garden, right? Give Adam the tree of life. Let him take a bite out of it. We got eternal life. Why put in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, like, who comes up with that plan? Well, I want to remind you that everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. The reason why God did it that way is because, and here's the thing that I want you to learn today, is that everything God does is for our good and his glory. We're going to get to the point and we're going to look at this and go, come on, like we, we, in our minds we would, go, I would if I wanted things to be great, why would I do it this way? And I would say, remember, this is the finite, talking to the infinite. Because remember, when we have a weak, wimpy worldview, we are then weak and wimpy Christians, unable to stand. There are going to be many things in this world we will not be able to fully grasp. But here's the one truth that we can fully grasp. That everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish what He has decreed. That is the only hope we have, that God is working all things together for His glory and our good, even though we may not understand it, even though we may say, well, I would not have done it that way, look at all the pain and sorrow and heartache, and get, I'll tell you what, we will handle, how does Christian worldview handle evil sin and heartache? But I want to give you a reason, the Christian worldview handles evil sin and heartache, Any other worldview just says, oops, I don't know why this happens, let's just try to stop it. And how well has that been doing? It doesn't. And so, what I would love for us to take away today, we can trust the Word of God from beginning to end. It is not written by a bunch of bumbling idiots who had no idea which way they were going. They were not uneducated fools. These are people that God has gifted and given them the words that He wanted in His sacred Scripture. We can trust it from verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2 all the way to the end. You can trust it from Genesis 1 all the way to the end. There's nothing in this text that contradicts itself. We can trust God. Second, when God created man... He created man, a fully functioning man, and breathed into his life and made him a living creature. That's why mankind has intrinsic dignity. That is why the call to share the gospel is to every image bearer of God. That is why we need to weep with those who are hurting. That's why we need to mourn with those who are mourning. But we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Because again, everything God is doing is for your good and his glory. And may we rest in that. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you that you are the creator, the sustainer of all things. Help us. We desperately need it. Keep our minds free from things that would so easily distract us and help us stand firm on the truth of your word and your word alone. Guide us. Give us the strength we need each day to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.